Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for Episode 70, The Apollo Program, Part 15. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. Clear, clear, clear. The clock has started. The clock has started. Last week, we talked about the Apollo 14 mission, Alan Shepard returning to space, and Stu Rusa's awesome headstone at Arlington in Section 7 Alpha. With all that was going on, I forgot to include a eulogy for Alan Shepard. No, he is not buried at Arlington, but as you know, I am giving each of the Mercury 7 a special send-off since we have spent so much time with them over the course of these Space Race episodes. After returning from the moon, Shepard was awarded the NASA Distinguished Service Medal and the Navy Distinguished Service Medal for the mission. He returned to his position as Chief of the Astronaut Office in June 1971, and in July, President Nixon appointed him as a delegate to the 26th United Nations General Assembly, where he served from September to December 1971. Before heading off to the UN, the President also promoted Shepard to Rear Admiral, becoming only the second astronaut to be promoted to flag rank, following Jim McDivitt's promotion to Brigadier General in the Air Force. Shepard retired from both NASA and the Navy on July 31, 1974. Though I referenced his infidelity in the Project Mercury episodes, Shepard was devoted to his three daughters. Frequently, Julie, Lori, and Alice were the only astronauts' children at NASA events. He taught them to ski and loved taking them out to Colorado for ski trips. He once rented a small plane to fly them and their friends from Texas to summer camp in Maine. He doted on his six grandchildren as well. Following Apollo 14, he began to spend more time with his wife, Louise, and started taking her with him on trips to the Paris Air Show every other year, and on trips to Asia. Luis heard rumors of Shepard's affairs, but after the publication of The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe in 1979 made them public knowledge, she never confronted him about them or contemplated leaving him. After Shepard left NASA, he served on the boards of several corporations, including Coors, which I mentioned last episode. He also served as president of his umbrella company for several business ventures, 714 Enterprises Incorporated, named after his two flights, Freedom 7 and Apollo 14. He made a fortune in banking and real estate. He was a fellow of the American Astronautical Society and the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. Shepard was an honorary board member for the Houston School for Deaf Children, a director of the National Space Institute and the Los Angeles Ear Research Institute, and a member of several other organizations, including Rotary, Kiwanis, the Order of Cincinnati, and the Mayflower Society, which I am also eligible to join thanks to my 12th great-grandpa, John Billington, the murderer, and I should look into that. 
1984, together with the surviving Mercury 7 astronauts and Gus Grissom's widow, Betty, Shepard co-founded the Mercury 7 Foundation, which raises money to provide scholarships to science and engineering students. It was renamed the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation in 1995. Shepard was elected the Foundation's first president and chair, positions he held until October 1997, when he was succeeded by Apollo 13 commander and former astronaut Jim Lovell. Currently, Shepard's daughter, Laura Churchley, leads the Foundation's board of trustees. In 1994, he and fellow Mercury 7 astronaut Deke Slayton published a book called Moonshot, the Inside Story of America's Race to the Moon. The book included a composite photograph showing Shepard hitting a golf ball on the lunar surface. There are no actual still images of that event, only the TV footage. That book was turned into a TV miniseries the same year. Rear Admiral Alan Bartlett Shepard Jr. was diagnosed with leukemia in 1996 and died from complications of the disease in Pebble Beach, California on July 21, 1998. He was 74 years old. Luis planned to cremate his remains and scatter his ashes, but before she could, she died of a heart attack barely a month after her husband at 5 p.m. on August 25th. I mentioned the time, 5 p.m., because, coincidentally, that was the same time of day Al would call her when they were apart. The couple was married for 53 years. Their children decided to cremate them both and spread their ashes together from a Navy helicopter over Stillwater Cove in front of their Pebble Beach home. I wish I had known that when I lived next door to Pebble Beach and Pacific Grove while attending the Naval Postgraduate School, I would have loved to have had the chance to pay my respects. On December 11, 2021, 23 years after Shepard's death, his daughter Laura flew in space aboard Blue Origin's new Shepard spacecraft named after her father. I am not going to try to name all of the many awards Admiral Shepard received during his accomplished life, but I will mention a few. He was the recipient of the Gold Plate Award from the American Academy of Achievement, the Langley Gold Medal, the Cabot Award, the Collier Trophy, and in 1978, President Jimmy Carter presented him with the Congressional Space Medal of Honor. He was awarded an honorary master's degree from Dartmouth College and honorary doctorates from Franklin Pierce College and Miami University the research school in Ohio, not the football school in Florida. He was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame in 1971, the International Space Hall of Fame in 1981, and the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1990. The Navy named a supply ship, the USNS Allen Shepard, after him, and Concord, New Hampshire, named its Science Museum after him and local teacher in space, astronaut Krista McAuliffe who died in the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. Portions of three interstates bear the name Alan Shepard, as does the post office in his hometown, Derry, New Hampshire, as well as the high school in Palos Heights, Illinois. That school's newspaper is named Freedom 7 and its yearbook, Odyssey. In a 2010 Space Foundation survey, Shepard was ranked as the ninth most popular space hero, tied with astronauts Buzz Aldrin and Gus Grissom. In 2011, 
NASA honored Shepard with an Ambassador of Exploration Award, consisting of a moon rock encased in lucite for his contributions to the U.S. space program. His family accepted the award on his behalf at his alma mater, the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, where it is on permanent display in the Academy's museum. Alan and Luis share a memorial stone at the Forest Hill Cemetery in Derry, New Hampshire. Throughout the Apollo program, NASA had specific goals in mind with the various unmanned and manned missions. The Apollo 11 mission was designated a G mission, the initial lunar landing mission. Apollos 12 through 14 were all H missions, precision manned lunar landing demonstrations and systematic lunar exploration missions. Apollo 15 was the first of three planned J missions, which looked to accomplish extensive scientific investigation of the moon from both the lunar surface and from lunar orbit. Part of the lunar surface activity portion of those missions would require the astronauts to travel greater distances from the lunar lander than ever before. The mission plans that NASA drew up for the first three successful expeditions to the lunar surface, Apollos 11, 12, and 14, restricted the astronauts to stay within close proximity of the lunar lander in case they needed to return quickly to the safety of their ship. For its J mission, Apollo 15 included a lunar roving vehicle, which I will simply refer to as the rover moving forward, and would allow them to explore miles away from the lander. Aside from writing and style, Apollo 15's designated landing area was described as one of the more spectacular regions of the lunar surface, on the edge of the Mare Imbrium, next to the Apennine Mountains and close to the Hadley Ryle. If you are like me and not up on your lunar geography, let me explain what those three things mean. The Mare Imbrium, located in the northern portion of the moon's near side, is a vast lava plain in one of the largest craters in the solar system. The Imbrium Basin formed roughly 4 billion years ago when a protoplanet collided with the moon. Basaltic lava later flooded the crater and formed the flat, relatively smooth volcanic plain that is there today. The Apennine Mountains are named after the mountain range in Italy. This range features several named mountains and forms a sharp, rugged rise on the edge of the Mare Imbrium with a wide expanse of foothills on the southeastern face. The total length of the range is 370 miles or 600 kilometers, with some peaks rising more than 16,000 feet or 5,000 meters. A new-to-me geographic term this week is a real, and hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, it's German. Real is German for groove and is typically used to describe any of the long, narrow depressions on the lunar surface that look like channels. The Hadley Real, believed to be an ancient lava flow, is located between two of the Apennine Ranges named mountains. 
Mons Hadley Delta and Mons Hadley, and was where Apollo 15 was supposed to land. Now that we know the destination of the mission, let's meet its all-Air Force crew. Mission Commander David Scott was making his third and final spaceflight, having previously flown with Neil Armstrong on the near-disastrous Gemini 8, and as Command Module Pilot for Apollo 9. For the other two members of the team, Command Module Pilot Al Warden and Lunar Module Pilot Jim Irwin, this would be their one and only spaceflight. For this mission, the command module was dubbed Endeavour after the Royal Navy research ship of the same name commanded by James Cook on his first voyage of discovery to Australia and New Zealand in the mid-18th century. Cook is credited with command of the first purely scientific sea voyage, one with no military or commercial motives behind it and driven by only the desire to increase human knowledge. Apollo 15 was the first space mission whose emphasis was on science instead of qualifying equipment and procedures for future missions. And as Apollo 11 had carried a piece of wood from the Wright brothers' first plane into space, Apollo 15's Endeavour carried a piece of wood from Cook's Endeavour with it. The lunar lander for this mission was dubbed Falcon in recognition of the all-Air Force crew. Falcons prey on other birds, making them experts in air-to-air combat, and as such, the Air Force has frequently used Falcon imagery. In 1955, the inaugural class of the Air Force Academy selected the Falcon to be the Academy's mascot, and live Falcons accompany Academy athletic teams at both home and away games. Two Falcon feathers were carried by the lunar lander to the moon on this mission. Similar to the Apollo 12 mission insignia having a maritime theme since all the crew members were also naval officers, the Apollo 15 insignia had a heavy Air Force motif as each crew member was in that service. The circular patch features a stylized red, white, and blue bird flying over Hadley Ryle. Immediately behind the birds, a line of craters form the Roman numeral 15. The Roman numbers were hidden in emphasized outlines of some craters after NASA insisted that the mission number be displayed in Arabic numerals. The artwork is circled in red, with a white band giving the mission and crew names and a blue border. The red, white, and blue colored birds represent each of the crew members and match the corvettes the astronauts drove while training in Florida. Apollo 15 launched just after 9.30 in the morning on July 26, 1971. The mission's translunar voyage was relatively trouble-free. On July 30th, just over 100 hours after liftoff, Falcon separated from Endeavour and began its descent to the lunar surface. When Falcon got to about 60 feet, or 18 meters above the ground, Scott and Irwin lost sight of the surface because of all the lunar dust being displaced by the lander. 
Falcon had a larger engine bell than the previous lunar modules, in part due to all the added weight from the rover, and this meant it would be even more important to shut the engine down as quickly as possible to avoid blowback, which was exhaust reflected off the surface and going back into the engine, which could possibly cause an explosion. Because of this, when Irwin called contact, indicating that one of the landing legs had touched the surface, Scott immediately shut off the engine, allowing Falcon to fall the remaining distance, about a foot and a half or half a meter, to the surface. This resulted in what was likely the hardest lunar landing of any of the crewed missions and caused a startled Irwin to yell, BAM! when they touched down. He later described the landing in his autobiography as the hardest landing he had ever experienced. After Irwin's exclamation, Scott reported, Okay, Houston, the Falcon is in the plane at Hadley. Falcon was scheduled to remain on the lunar surface for three days, so Scott decided it was important that he and Irwin maintain the circadian rhythm they were used to. They had landed in the late afternoon Houston time and would need to sleep before their surface activity, but they still had a little time to kill, so Scott opened the top hatch of the lander, which was usually used for docking, and spent half an hour looking at the surroundings, describing them, and taking pictures. This turned out to be the only stand-up extravehicular activity performed on the lunar surface through the top hatch, and it allowed Scott to plan out the following day's surface activity. After repressurizing Falcon, Scott and Irwin removed their spacesuits, becoming the first astronauts to do that while on the moon, which allowed them to get more comfortable before turning in for the night. After waking up and donning their suits, Scott and Irwin began their first EVA. Scott had his moment in the spotlight and uttered these words as he took his first steps on the lunar surface. Okay, Houston, as I stand out here in the wonders of the unknown at Hadley, I try to realize there's a fundamental truth to our nature. Man must explore. And this is exploration at its greatest. Man must explore, and this is exploration at its greatest. And to explore more than had been explored before, he and Irwin deployed the rover. They unfurled it from its storage compartment on the side of the lander and unfolded it into a form that looked a bit like a dune buggy. This highly sophisticated vehicle, about 10 feet long and 7 feet wide, or 3 meters by 2 meters, was designed specially to operate in a vacuum with wide temperature extremes. It had four wire mesh wheels, was powered by two silver zinc batteries, and equipped with a high-gain antenna for direct communication with Earth. The rover was also equipped with a TV camera, remotely controlled by NASA back in Houston. That camera's resolution was nowhere near as good as the still cameras the astronauts had, but it did allow geologists on Earth to indirectly participate in the surface activity. The first EVA lasted six and a half hours, during which they drove out to two craters, one called Elbow and an unnamed crater on the flank of the Mons Hadley Delta, 
where they collected rock and soil before driving back to the lander to store those samples. The second surface activity also had a heavy geology focus, and the astronauts drove around collecting more soil and rock samples. One of these rock samples would later be dubbed the Genesis Rock. This rock, an anorthosite, is believed to have been part of the early lunar crust. The hope of finding such a rock was one of the reasons the Hadley area had been selected as a landing site. It was during this EVA that the requisite flag raising took place, and 7 hours and 12 minutes after it started, the astronauts climbed back into Falcon. It was during the third EVA that Scott conducted one of the simplest and most unforgettable lunar experiments while standing in front of a TV camera. While holding a hammer in one hand and a falcon feather in the other, he looked to demonstrate Galileo's theory that all objects in a gravity field fall at the same rate regardless of mass, in the absence of aerodynamic drag. He dropped the hammer and the feather at the same time, and because of the negligible lunar atmosphere, there was no drag on the feather which hit the ground at the same time as the hammer. This was part of an effort by NASA to find memorable science experiments to do on the moon along the lines of Alan Shepard hitting golf balls. At the end of this surface activity, Scott drove the rover to a position away from the lunar lander where the rover's camera would be used to film Falcon's liftoff from the lunar surface. Near the rover, he left a small aluminum statuette called Fallen Astronaut, along with a plaque engraved with the names of 14 known American astronauts and Soviet cosmonauts who had died to further space exploration. The list included all the names from the plaque left by the Apollo 11 crew, as well as those who had died in the two years since that mission. The memorial was left while the television camera was turned away. Scott told Mission Control he was doing some cleanup around the rover and did not disclose the memorial until a post-mission press conference. He also placed a Bible on the control panel of the rover before leaving it for the final time and walking back to the lunar lander. This final EVA lasted just under five hours. In all, the astronauts spent 18 and a half hours outside Falcon during their time on the moon. The rover had traveled just over 17 miles, about 27 kilometers, when it was left behind, and 170 pounds or 77 kilograms of samples had been collected. When Falcon lifted off from the lunar surface, it did so in a shower of multicolored sparks. On the way back home, Command Module Pilot Al Warden took a unique spacewalk 197,000 miles, more than 317,000 kilometers from Earth, to retrieve undeveloped film from the side of the service module, making it the first ever deep space EVA. I wasn't initially going to say anything more about the spacewalk other than he did it, but the more I thought about it, the more it blew my mind. Nearly 200,000 miles from Earth, Warden exited the safety of his spacecraft. And yes, I recognized that there had been several spacewalks done in Earth orbit throughout Projects Gemini and Apollo by this point, 
And I also recognize that the consequences of anything going majorly wrong during an EVA would have likely been as catastrophic in Earth orbit as it would have been in deep space. But for whatever reason, to me, this deep space spacewalk seems even more amazing than those that preceded it. At first glance, risking humans to receive cassettes of film might seem unnecessarily foolhardy, but in reality, spacewalking presented the least dangerous option. Warden had to traverse a distance of 30 feet, about 9 meters, and return the same route, traveling hand over hand in the cislunar void between the Earth and the Moon. In a May 2000 oral history for NASA, Warden recalled that other methods to retrieve the film had been discussed before the flight, including the use of a clothesline-like reel to tug the film cassettes out of the Simbe and back to Endeavour's hatch, but having an astronaut outside proved more practical. He was attached to the command module by a 25-foot or 7.5-meter tether, which greatly reduced the threat of floating off into deep space, and Warden felt that weightlessness actually made him work more methodically than in pre-flight training for the spacewalk. We never rushed at any time, he said. It flowed very smoothly, but a little slower than we anticipated. Unlike previous EVAs, with Earth readily visible above or below one's position, Warden found himself surrounded on all sides by the pitchest blackness, and one of the few sources of available illumination was sunlight reflected by the command module's shiny surfaces. Warden kicked off the spacewalk by setting up a television camera to enable mission control to watch him, and over the next 39 minutes, he made three trips between Endeavour's hatch and the Simbe, retrieving the panoramic camera and mapping camera cassettes, then pausing to check the condition of the other instruments. After the EVA, his sole complaint was that his tether proved a little short as he reached the end of the command module. While Warden was retrieving the film, Jim Irwin was standing up in the hatch to help keep Warden's tether from getting tangled. One of the lasting regrets from the first translunar EVA was that aside from a few blurred stills and the video, we only have the astronauts' recollection of the true splendor of this first-ever deep-space spacewalk, roughly equidistant between the home planet and its natural satellite. At one point, Warden caught sight of Irwin perched in Endeavour's hatch. Jim, you look absolutely fantastic against the moon back there. That is really a most unbelievable and remarkable thing. Without a camera, Warden couldn't snap a picture of the site, but artist Pierre Mion later painted it for National Geographic. Today, more than 50 years later, Warden remains one of only three humans to have left their ship and maneuvered outside in cislunar space. After the event, he described the unique perspective he was granted. I can see the Earth and the Moon at the same time. If you're on Earth, you can't do that. And if you're on the moon, you can't do that. It's a very unique place to be. I will embed the video of the complete EVA on the website, along with videos of the Feather vs. Hammer gravity experiment, and of Falcon lifting off from the lunar surface, and the Pierre Mion illustration of Warden's view of Irwin. 
the Apollo 15 mission ended 12 days and 7 hours after it began. The crew was recovered in the North Pacific Ocean by the amphibious assault ship USS Okinawa, and to this day is considered the most successful of the Apollo missions. Apollo 15 saw an increase in public interest in the Apollo program, in part due to a fascination with the rover. Cars in space. But it wasn't just the exporting of American car culture to the moon. It was also the beauty of the Hadley Real site and the increased television coverage. According to David Woods in the Apollo Lunar Flight Journal, Though subsequent missions traveled farther on the moon, brought back more samples, and put the lessons of Apollo 15 into practice, this feat of pure exploration still stands out as a great moment of human achievement. It is remembered still for its competent enthusiasm, magnificent machinery, finely honed science, and the grandeur of a very special sight in the cosmos beside a meandering real and graceful massive mountains. Hadley Base. Despite this success, you might be surprised to hear that the careers of all three astronauts were tarnished and came to an abrupt end shortly after returning to Earth. Why? Well, that's a story for next week. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website www. GhostsOfArlingtonPodcast.com. You can also help others learn about the podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal. <laughs>